0: What does motion sound like? With Kizzik Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizzik.com socks.
1: Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade.
2: Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. Uh, we're, fi- we're following everything in Af- uh, I almost said Afghanistan, uh, in Ukraine, uh, the latest on the fight, uh, as they continue to hold out and Kiev gets closer and closer to being surrounded. But if I'm the Ukrainians, I'm not that worried about it as normally I would have been two weeks ago. When you see the lack of gumption and drive the Russians have, I'm not. Think- I'm not too sure they're poised... ...to take a city, especially in the north where the fighting force isn't uh, as strong. Coming up in about a half hour, uh, Tim Tebow with me right now in studio. Best-selling author, William Barr. You know him as Attorney um, uh, Attorney General under President Trump who also served under uh, Bush 41. His new book is, uh, is fascinating. It's called One Damn Thing After Another. Mr. Attorney General, welcome to the studio.
3: Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be with
2: you. First off, we didn't see heard much of you since, the, <laughs> since your tenure ended uh, with the Trump administration. Oh, well, I had post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> Did you know, I guess you would had to know, and after seeing the first year and a half of President Trump's term, That you were walking into a firestorm. Did you know? Absolutely. What did you think? What was it like?
3: Uh, I knew it was, as you say, a firestorm. Uh, And I also thought we were potentially headed toward a constitutional crisis with the way uh, the the Russiagate narrative was being handled.
2: Yeah, We'll just move the mic a little bit closer to you. It might be a little bit easier. When did you realize— Because a lot of people on the right that were Trump supporters couldn't figure out what really was the deal with the Russia situation. Then Mueller goes underground and we hear rumors about subpoenas and raids and we see this. We didn't know quite what was going on. When did you realize that this was a hoax?
3: Well, it wasn't until I got into the government and could get all the information that I became convinced that it was uh, that way. But I was skeptical uh, about it from the beginning. It just didn't fit. You know, there's no reason why Putin and the Russian intelligence services would have colluded with anyone in the United States. If they wanted to do something and hack into something and dump some documents, they would do it. They don't need to coordinate that with anybody. It would be very risky for them to do that. So it never really fit together with me. uh, And uh, the more I found out about it, the more skeptical I became.
2: From what I've read in the book, you know, my takeaway is you're like a true conservative. What matters more to you is the country. And what worries you most of all is the progressive line of thought. It doesn't seem like a Democrat. Bill Clinton was centered left. That's called run against issues. Right. What's different now that motivated you in your 70s to get back into government at an extremely difficult time?
3: Yeah, I think that there's been a transformational change in the Democratic Party uh, under Obama where it lurched very sharply to the left and as I say in the book, they're not, this is no longer a family feud between within the family. Uh, I think that the progressive left has left the family. They are not part of the liberal democratic tradition of the United States. Uh, they're trying to tear down our institutions. They're no longer for free speech. Uh, and uh, I think it's a mortal danger to the republic, uh, this progressive agenda – and I uh, supported Trump once he got the nomination, and I thought it was important to stop their momentum, which he did. So— uh, You think in a way that other Republican candidates wouldn't have? Uh, see, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, in a way, yes. Uh, you know, maybe uh, someone else could have won the election, but uh, he had some traits that I thought fit the times, Uh, And and one of them was the ability to fight back against the establishment, against the mainstream media, not be cowed by them, keep on going, and he could take a punch. He could take a punch like no one I have ever seen and keep going. And those that were the traits that were needed. And he has taught the Republican Party something. Um, He's taught the Republican Party how to fight. I think that's a fair – fair to give him credit for that. And uh, I think that that's improved the party going forward. I think there's a lot of positive things about
2: the president. You're willing to accept the fact that he's atypical for a politician. You never saw anyone quite right. like him. You mentioned he can take a punch. You also had clarity of views. Yes. So especially at the border, things like the border, things about America first. That wasn't just a line in a campaign that some speechwriter put in because it was poll tested or focus group tested.
3: Right, I mean, uh he had I sort of call them red meat issues. There were certain issues with him where he took a strong common sense position and he was right about it and nothing could get him off it and I admired that about him. Crime, the drug war, the cartels in Mexico, the uh immigration issues, the uh, big tech and censorship. These were his uh, issues that he was very uh, fixed on and he was unshakable on them. And he had the energy to push them through. What I say is his impulsiveness had some downside to it, but it also had an upside. And one of his upside was it gave dynamism to the administration and pushed things along. How do you explain the loyalty he generated? Uh, From his base? I think his base—I think uh, that— what happened in 2016 is that a lot of ordinary middle-class, working-class Americans were just fed up with the, uh, the uh, smugness of the elites and the excesses of the liberals, uh, the progressives, and they were mad. And they wanted to push back, and they felt the, the progressives had taken a wrecking, wrecking ball to the country, and they wanted their own wrecking ball. And they liked the fact it was so plain-spoken and got in their face, and he was combative. And that helped him. And he was sort of speaking for them. And that's where I think that loyalty came from.
2: I, I think that – and that's why in, in many cases it's still there and he still yes. polls highest on, amongst Republicans. You said in 2016 you would have crawled across glass to vote for him.
3: Yes, and, and just on one issue alone, and that was the courts and the, the appointments. And Supreme the, Court too and the, yeah, uh, the, the vacant judgeships. Right, and he delivered on that as he delivered on a lot of what he promised and uh just just the courts in my mind justified supporting him i never uh, i thought i always thought the never trumpers uh you know were 180 degrees wrong
2: so how what do you think about the supreme court justice pick
3: now i think they're they're good you know over the long haul they're going to be good justices all of them uh, you know, the president has this idea that if he picks somebody, they have to vote the way he thinks from then on in perpetuity. That's not the way it works. He <laughs> <You> really <laughs> believes that, though, too. Yeah. <laughs> what, what about Biden's nominee? I don't know uh, much about her, but I think she's going to be, you know, uh, probably more left than Breyer was, more to the left than Stephen What Breyer. about the way Breyer was treated at the end? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty, it was pretty harsh. I think he probably would have liked to stay another year, but— uh, They basically retired him without his permission. (laughs) Have you ever seen anything like that? (laughs) No. Right. Well, you know, Johnson once negotiated someone off the Supreme Court by offering to make his son the attorney general. So (laughs) sometimes these games are played.
2: Uh, I want you to hear uh, a couple of things. We're in the middle of this Russia-Ukraine war. Yeah. You saw a lot of the foundation, the Russian hoax, really laid the foundation for something like this to happen. Because we could not make any progress— And directly deal with Russia because for two years Vladimir Putin was looked at as enemy number one of America and a close confidant of President Trump, which we now know is not true. In what way did that play into what we're seeing now?
3: Because I think it was very clear uh, during our administration, during President Trump's administration, that the main enemy was China uh, over the long term and that uh, Putin had made it very clear what his red lines were. And what should have happened was an effort to reach some kind of modus vivendi with the Russians, diplomacy, to try to figure out what the framework is for us coexisting with the Russians in Europe going forward. Now, maybe there was a solution. Maybe there wasn't. But, but, but uh, Trump's hands were tied by Russia Gate. If he even met with behind closed doors or if we tried to negotiate with the Russians, uh, you know, the whole Russiagate thing would have been used against him. Can you imagine
2: if it was during your term, we left Afghanistan like this, and during your term, Russia invaded the Ukraine? Right. Been the two biggest disasters, President Trump doesn't know what he's doing. Of course. Uh, And then he promised Vladimir Putin in a backdoor room he could have in a backdoor deal, he could have Ukraine.
3: Right. Now, you know, one of the things I point out in my book is the media has been – the mainstream media has been biased for a long time, and I reminded people how they brought down H.W. Bush. 19 months before the, his reelection in 1992, he was at 89% popularity, and they used the phony Iraqgate scandal and a number of other things to bring him down, even though we had economic growth for those 19 months. Um, and uh, I remind people of that, but things are much worse today, and that was one of the you know, the things that I saw right away when I went back into government 28 years later, the press had become even more partisan and more rabid. generally speaking.
2: Is it, tell me if you think this is an honest assessment of why gas prices are so high. Here's President Biden, who even though we're in the middle of an oil gas crunch and an energy crisis, went to Texas where so much energy, oil and gas, uh, the industry mm-hmm. thrives and decided to talk about burn pits. But here it was he answered this one question. The audio is not great, but you can hear it cut
4: nine't do much right now
2: so the gas prices have have gone up almost a hundred percent since you guys left office. And he says it's Russia's responsible for the gas prices. They started welling up troops a year ago.
3: Is that true? No, obviously not. You know, he's going to use Russia as the excuse. But, uh, you know, he, he has basically uh, destroyed America's uh, energy independence. He doesn't realize you know, the the fact that the United States is floating in energy uh, and – that is a tremendous benefit to the United States. That allows us going forward to uh, restore uh, American manufacturing, low-cost uh, manufacturing, and uh, it, 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 and brings our, our, our cost of production way down. It's good for the middle class and working class to have cheaper energy, and yet he's ruined uh, that by essentially putting the kibosh on our in- energy. Independence. I'll probably put this in
2: the best terms I understand. Is that there's now a push with Janet Yellen leading to not provide financing for any oil and gas project in America? Right. There's 244 billion dollar in um, in liquid natural gas stalled right now because they can't get financing to drill and to frack. Right, and Janet Yellen is threatening these institutions that want to yell that want to finance these oil and gas companies to mine or drill for gas and oil. How, even though it means profits for mutual funds, big and small, and for these companies, how dare you do that in a free market economy?
3: That's right. I mean, all the regulation is skewed against uh, exploiting our natural resources, making us more dependent on other countries for energy. One would have thought we'd learned during COVID how dependence. Uh, On foreign countries is a dangerous thing. There's nothing more important for our national security than energy independence and our our economy moving forward, and and the price of heating homes and so forth. And is that allowed,
2: Mr. Attorney General?
3: Is that allowed to to
2: tell companies do not invest, to to financial institutions do not uh, provide financing for X, Y, and Z company to to refine, to drill, to explore?
3: Well, they can game the rules and the regulations and the oversight to create such uncertainty in the regulatory regime that you, you cannot make investments, and that's the problem. They, uh, and, and the Obama administration had the same problem. They don't understand that people have to have predictability in right. the regulatory regime to make these huge investments.
2: Same with R and D when it comes to defense. Yes. We can't get our budget together. Uh, the Attorney General, will stay with me one more segment because his book is out. Uh, it's uh, it's number one. One damn thing after another. Memoirs of an Attorney General. Uh, Bill Barr here. Don't move. You're listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show.
1: Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. From the
5: Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com.
1: A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show.
4: Putin is angry and frustrated right now. He's likely to double down and try to grind down the Ukrainian military with no regard for civilian casualties.
2: That was uh, Bill Burns testifying yesterday as CIA director. And so far, it was pretty clear they wanted to quickly get in within two days, decapitate Kiev, the capital, and basically take the government hostage, put his own one in. William Barr, my guest right now, not only uh, is his book uh, One Damn Thing After Another out, he also is a conservative thinker, uh, understands the political landscape, not just a great legal mind. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, what do you think Putin does now from how, from what we've seen so far?
3: I think Ber- Burns was right. I think uh, he has bit off more than he can chew, and there's no exit ramp for him. And he's going to uh, – I think he's just going to double down and, and grind this out. Uh, to try to claim uh, military victory. But then he's going to be stuck with uh, guerrilla warfare, continued casualties.
2: You're working with Bush 41 mm-hmm. when the wall comes down, and we have a post-Cold War, and yeah. it's Bar- Mikhail Bor- Gorbachev, yeah. and then it's Boris Yeltsin. Yeah, And from what you saw then, as we tried to help them become a capitalist country, I thought, mm-hmm. uh, and they ended up being a lot of corruption, oligarchs, and um, and, and not being, the people never felt that, uh, that capitalistic thing that we, we right. maybe take for granted. Having said that, do we have a Putin problem or do we have a Russia problem? Uh,
3: I, I think we have both in that uh, Putin represents a certain strand of Russian thinking uh, and Russia's cultural history, which is they conceive of themselves as a great power. They're generally very paranoid about people uh, in coming from the east or the west. Uh, and uh, they were humiliated by the end of the Cold War. And so he is interested in building up Russia more, uh, and I think that's why he has broad support in Russia. But I think that's going to evaporate because I think they have had it. The Russian people have had enough of a taste of sort of the Western style of life that they're not going to like what they see when they're being strangled economically.
2: This Mig situation, you says, is indicative of what? The fact that we can't get twenty nine outdated nineteen eighties Migs into the Ukrainian, the country of Ukraine, or struggling to, is indicative of what? Indicative of what?
3: I think it was a major mistake by by Biden not to put those uh, plane and other planes and other hardware in earlier. We knew what was he knew what was coming. He knew that he was facing a potential invasion of Ukraine. By he told Russia. everybody, right? And yet. The only way to deter that would have been to flood in lethal aid, including planes. Uh, Now we're in the middle of the war. It's more risky to put those planes in. I'm not saying I'm against it, but it certainly has raised the risk for us a lot. And that's the kind of step that we could have taken beforehand that might have actually deterred the attack, along with more missiles and so forth up front. You understand Trump's language sometimes gets yeah. him in trouble. When sure. he
2: said originally, when, when he started moving on the Ukraine, he said, this is brilliant. In Trump terms, what did he mean by that?
3: Yeah, well, I don't always understand what he's saying. You know, he does have this tendency to admire certain strongmen. I mean, that's a fact, you know, Erdogan and Putin and, and, and Xi. There's something he admires about them and their decisiveness. And uh, I think that's what he was referring to. Right. Yeah.
2: But people like to jump on that yeah, and then say yeah. he's out of touch. But what he's trying to say is you can be evil and make a move that's in your best interest. Right. He, but not in the world's interest. Right. He
3: views things as transactions, and it's a series of transactions. And from my yeah. observation, his basic move in transactions is you get to jump on the other guy and you put him at a disadvantage right up front. So they're, so they're want to negotiate away the advantage you've just seized right at the beginning. Right. So what I think he was saying was Putin's smart because right. he's, he's jumping on it quickly.
2: I have another job for you, press secretary for <laughs> a second Trump term. I'm going to see what I can do. You can work with Kaylee. I'll see you in the hall. <laughs>
1: A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade.
5: What they're doing with this bill is even even amid the torrential downpour of nonsense that we get from these people, it manages to stand out because what we know about them is: look, the left—they're—they're very—they they're, have no integrity. They're, they're liars. They're also good at branding. So they've—they've they've taken this bill and branded it the "Don't Say Gay" bill. When not only does the bill not do that, it—the bill doesn't even mention the word "gay" anywhere in it. It, all it says, as uh, the governor points out, is very specifically that you cannot, there cannot be classroom instruction by a teacher about gender identity or sexual orientation for kids up to the, up to grade three. And that was Matt
2: Walsh talking about Governor DeSantis, uh, Florida generated Governor DeSantis to sign a bill that people labeled don't say, yay bill. What they're trying to do is stop talking about gender and sexuality to kids that don't know anything about it in kindergarten, first, second and third grade. That is causing outrage. Governor DeSantis not backing off. William Barr, my guest, his book is out one damn thing after another. Memoirs of an Attorney General. Enough said. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, how do you feel about this bill? Will it stand this test of scrutiny? Because the federal government is threatening to take some money or financing away if it goes through.
3: I think it will withstand scrutiny, even if it takes getting it up to the Supreme Court. And I think it's an entirely reasonable bill. It's very reasonable to say that kids at that kind of tender age, that subject matter shouldn't be raised and taught in school at that
2: point. Are you amazed that we have to have this conversation? I am. I am. What happened with education in your mind? You have a long view of it in your book about what happened to the American education. We had a public school system that welcomed um, Christian Judeo values. So there was no reason to really uh do what Europe
3: has done could you right. expand on that well the western tradition has been that that moral formation and moral education was the job of the parents and the church and it wasn't the state's role to to tell you know tell people what the good life was and and make men in their own image and uh, but then when we established public schools in the middle of the 19th century uh, the religion that was taught there was was basically consistent with, with the mores and the beliefs of most Americans. Up until 1960, 95% of the American people identified themselves as Christian, and the schools were basically Christian. They taught the Bible, they said the Lord's Prayer, and so forth. Then starting in the 1960s, they tried to secularize school by stripping out Christianity, and then starting under you know, the Obama administration, it was more like indoctrination. It wasn't taking out Christianity. It was putting in something else, something else that tells someone why uh, why to be good. In other words, if you say to someone, thou shalt not do this, then you better be able to explain why. And once you do away with Christianity, how do you tell people why? They started affirmatively putting in ideology, alternative ideology, like Critical race theory or transgenderism and things like that.
2: Some anti-American views, right? Anti-American
3: answered. views, uh, and so the the state doesn't have any business doing that. The state doesn't have any business, and you know what's we- weird is, you know, the original settlers in the United States ran away from uh, England because of religious liberty. But how does the how do the English run uh, school choice? They pay for everyone's education. And as long as a school is accredited, you can send your kid to a Church of England school, a Catholic school, a Hindu school, a Muslim school. Which means you think we should head in what direction? Vouchers. I think, I think in a pluralistic society, we can't have the state hostile to the traditional beliefs of the people and undermine the authority – uh, and the religion of a family by teaching these these uh, you know, ideological doctrines. And so I think we need to have school choice.
2: And that's, do you think, kind of the, the organic uprising that we saw last midterm election with yes. people of Virginia and others saying, what are you teaching my kid?
3: Right. And I'd like to see more governors aggressive on this. And the other part of it is, you know, I've said the, the systemic racism that exists in our society is the public school system in the inner city and, and how we're warehousing these uh, – uh black children in the inner city and not giving them school choice. We should be having school choice, charter schools, parochial schools. Let the parents decide. And you see them line up for these yeah. uh, other schools, these alternative yep. schools.
2: Um, my view of you and Mike Pence were the two MVPs of the Trump term. Well
8: thank you and very much.
2: And I don't think there's any question for people that wanted to see I want to see every president successful. But for somebody that knew Donald Trump twenty years before, I never claimed to be great friends with him. But he was always, we always were very respectful. Covered him even when he was um, when he was promoting fights. When I had no idea he was going to be in that. Mm-hmm. But to see you come in and steady the ship like you did, and to see Mike Pence provide the congressional background and understand how the the, the, the uh, you know how everything ran in Congress and what he did in Congress right. was un- indispensable. Yes. What does it say? that both those people are really not on speaking terms with the former president who wants
3: to be president again. Well, I, you know, I think one of the things about Trump is it's hard for anyone to have a durable relationship with him unless you are essentially dependent on him. I can't think of anybody that's lasted very long in any relationship with him who's an independent person, and uh, I think that speaks to him. Uh, I think that he has many, many strong points, but he also has failings, and that's one of them.
2: And what he doesn't handle criticism or people that right. push back against. He
3: wants him. people to tell him what he wants to hear.
2: Um, you really said the clown show around him mm-hmm. after January before, after the election to January 6th, led him down that path. Do you think that he did, he took their advice, or do you think he kept people around that agreed with him, like Jenna Ellis and Rudy Giuliani uh, and others?
3: I think he he's more comfortable being told what he wants to hear. And I think... They were telling him with great gusto that exactly what he wanted to hear. Most, most of it was you know, false, but he uh, was guided by it. Did you take Rudy
2: Giuliani aside and say, Rudy, you know this isn't true? No, you I
3: didn't. You know
2: there's nothing there?
3: No, I didn't. Do you wish you did? No, because that would have been a scandal, you know. The Attorney General privately talking to uh, Rudy Giuliani. I, I oh, uh, you to thought to, that would have been overstepping? Uh, but
2: did you ever question his lawyers and say, "What are you basing this on?" I, I looked at this thing. By, I have my whole staff look at this,
3: uh, tr- or well, is there such a separation that you can't? Well, they no, they they threw through appropriate channels. You know, they let it be known what they're arguments were, and we looked at what their arguments were, and there was nothing to them. I mean, a lot of them were just completely silly and based on false information. I mean, the president repeated it as recently as January 13th this year, where he said that uh, his big piece of evidence about fraud was that more people voted in Philadelphia than there were registered voters in Philadelphia, and that was completely wrong,
2: completely wrong. And And you looked at it with a fresh set of eyes, and if there was something,
3: you would have spoke up. Absolutely, you know, I, I wanted him to win re-election. Uh, I went in, I you know, went in, and, and uh, it was to be. Honest, it was rough for me to go back into government, and I did it. And I wanted him to win re-election. I would have been happy uh, if there was evidence—not happy in the sense that uh, if it turned out that he did win, but he did not win the election. And if he had won, would you want to stay? Actually, no. I- <laughs> <laughs> it would have been one and out. Yeah. Right. You landed yeah. the plane
7: after
2: the Mueller report right. uh, like I don't think anybody else would have. Uh, one damn thing after another, Memoirs of an Attorney General. It's going to be a bestseller for a long time, and I'm so glad you came in. Hopefully, I'll talk to you on One Nation this weekend. Sure. Thank you. Uh, Thank it's you Great much. to meet you in person, yeah. Mr. Okay. Attorney General. Uh, back with this guy named Tim Tebow, your arch rival, uh, yeah. right after this.
1: <laughs> it's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade.
2: Welcome back, everyone. Brian Kilmeade Show with me in studio. If you're watching Fox Nation, you see it. Tim Tebow. It's so great to see you, Tim, in person. Your book is excellent. Mission Possible. Go create a life that counts. Uh, Baseball player, football player, Heisman Trophy winner, now broadcaster. (laughs) Uh, But we're not necessarily talking about that. Before we get into the heart of the book, your reaction to Russell Wilson be going to the Broncos?
0: Honestly, I, I, I gotta say, I, I'm kind of excited about it. I, I still, I think I'm a little bit biased, but I, I, I just think Bronco fans are awesome. I, I can't tell you how much I loved my time there, and I the last think
2: thing you did is win a playoff. Well, the second last thing you yeah. did is win a playoff game, and then we lost to Brady. So <laughs> that was the
0: last thing <laughs> I did there, but it was such a special couple of years being there with the Bronco fans and I still love them to be honest with you. I think they're incredible fans and I think Russell going there, I think it's going to bring a lot of life. I think they have a lot of talent there. I think they're going to be really good and also I'm excited about that division. That's going to be crazy good. Right. Like, are you kidding? You have the Chiefs. I think. I think um, the Raiders, Raiders are going to be, be, be a lot better. Um, you know, Josh there now. That's going to be fascinating. And that's who drafted me too. And so that's going to be really interesting. And then you know the, the the Chargers. Obviously, they've gotten so much better. So right, be pretty interesting. If they
2: didn't bring in Peyton Manning. You think that was your job?
0: Because you it's, it's, you were the last one started to, before. Yeah, it's hard to look back and say you know what ifs. I I would just say that I think it was so special, such a special time. I think that we were able to do some really special things, and especially from being one and four, and then to go on a run and and win the division, and 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 then and beat, the the t- beat the Steelers. Yeah, that was, uh, that was that was. It was really special, and if you know, you you never know. Maybe if you had more time, could have done some special things. But also, uh, they they brought on someone kind of good. Peyton is pretty good. He ended up being he ended up panning out pretty good. Yeah, after
2: taking a year and a half off or something. Uh, So it was interesting. I'm reading the intro to your book, and by the way, I, I loved. You had to write about a book. You've had a lot of success in your life, but you don't pull punches when it doesn't work. I remember you writing about you you playing for the Patriots. You're hitting it off with Belichick. Bob Kraft's inviting you to the house. You expect to go over <laughs> there for a party. Right. And the I next know. thing you know, they go, Tim, I need to see you. Yes. You gave up a huge uh, commercial too, yeah. right? A yeah. million dollars. Yes. Because you said, hey, Bill, do you mind if I do this? You're like, I wouldn't like it. He cuts you the next day or something.
0: <laughs> right? I know. But what kind of got my hopes up was, it was Mr. Kraft said, yeah, yeah, come over to the house. We're having the luncheon. And so I'm like... I made Dang, I guess I made the team. Uh, and it was like, well, not so fast, my friend. Uh, what happens? You're fired. So a football
2: player, baseball player, broadcaster, and he said, find a mission. I'm thinking to myself, on surface, okay, that's his mission. He found broadcasting after. He goes, that's not it. That's what I do for a living. That's right. But you found a mission, and your mission happened to you because you saw a tragedy in front of you. Yes. And that tragedy was this little boy with two feet born on backwards. Yes. Nothing to do with his... Fault, not his fault. Yes. But his life was was almost over before it began. It
0: was, is because he was viewed as a throwaway. Because where he lived, they they viewed him as cursed, as less than, as insignificant, and and really the only reason that he was able to survive was because he had two friends that were willing to do whatever. It, took to, to fight to get him food, literally steal food, to, to put it on his, 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 his table, his plate to give him food, and he was viewed as this throwaway, and I just knew that he wasn't a throwaway to God, and he shouldn't be a throwaway to me or anybody else, and we need to, I personally knew that day, I was called to go fight for boys and girls like him around the world, and, and what you- What year was that? That was when I was 15 years old, yeah, and-, um, and So it, no one knew who you were then? nobody. Um, and, um, It was something that I I knew that was my mission. I didn't know exactly what it looked like. I didn't know exactly what I was supposed to do, but I knew it was around this. It was based on this. And I think there's probably a lot of people that are thinking, well, what exactly is my mission? I've never had that encounter. And I would say, yeah, I I don't know exactly what your mission is, but have your eyes ever been open to a need, to a problem, to a hurting person? And has your heart ever been pricked to want to go do something? If so, that, that might be God saying, hey, go start to meet this need. And you might not know exactly what it looks like. You know, might not know exactly the end goal or how the twists and the turns in it. But it's got to also start with action. Right, and, and I believe that, that when we see this and we feel this, we need to act. And it will, you know, it's also living by faith. You don't know exactly what all the next steps are, but we have to take the step and and being able, willing to go do something, and we'll continue to learn in the process. So what
2: was the foundation that started then, and how has your mission even brought you to the war in Ukraine?
0: Well, I, I'll tell you that I, I wasn't allowed to start it because uh, NCAA rules until I finished uh, college, and then was literally the first or second day after I graduated. Uh, was when I started the Tim Teo Foundation. And our mission statement was literally just thinking about that boy. It's one of the easiest things I did. Okay, what is our mission statement? I thought about him and I said, okay, it's to bring faith, hope, and love to those needing a brighter day and their darkest hour of need. Because I, what does that boy need? He needs faith, open love, because he is in his darkest hour of need. He is a throwaway, and he needs help, mm-hmm. and he urgently needs help. And so that was our mission statement, and it started with orphans, and it started with special needs, and then it led into hospitals, and it then ultimately led into more in the fight against human trafficking and growing and growing and um, And it's been something that has developed and developed throughout the years because we didn't know exactly at first what it looked like, but God has continued to show us as we've gone.
2: And now the Ukraine war starts and you're not a bystander. What are you doing?
0: Well, um... We, we've been able to, to serve in the Ukraine for, for several years, especially through um, our Night to Shine host churches, which Night to Shine is a worldwide prom for people with special needs. And there's been many churches in Ukraine that have hosted and partnered with us in that and loving the special needs community. And so, um, you know, when all of this happened and we're communicating with our host churches and our host partners that take care of orphans and special needs kids, it's what do you what do you need? How can we help? How can we support? And I'll tell you. That we think that 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 we're supporting, and maybe we are a little bit. But I'll tell you, they're inspiring us more than we could ever do for them. The heroes that we have, that we have seen, that we have talked to, that we have partnered with, that we have watched—they're not everyday heroes. And they're, they're great courage, right? Her- this is great courage. Crazy courage. It is incredible to watch. I mean. Th- you know, because of the time difference, our team's getting up super early in the middle of the night to talk to them first thing in the morning, so they can figure out in the day wh- what do they need, how can we support, how can we get them to safety, and then working with you know different partners um, like Lifesong and trying to get safe homes ready in, in Poland. So you got to find it, where the Russian troops
2: are, where the roads. Yeah, are. There,
0: there's so many different things. We're grateful for so many partners that are working on different parts of this. But but what what they say is, hey. You know we, we know bombs are going off around us, but we know God's in control. And this is exactly where we're supposed to be. And so many have had the chance when they've taken groups out to stay out. And yet so many of our partners go right back in to serve and to continue to help. And I'll tell you what, it, it really is true courage and true heroism. Tim
2: Tebow's book is called Mission Possible. If people want to help you out with the foundation and find out their mission, where do they go?
0: Uh, TimTebowfoundation.org. Gotcha.
2: Now, you uh, win the Heisman? Uh, a sophomore, right? Yes, sir. Sophomore, you win the Heisman as sophomore. You you win a playoff game, shock the world, and beat the Pittsburgh Steelers. You also uh, for two years you're making your way through minor leagues. You almost made it as a tight end in this league too. You've had uh, unbelievable success, international fame. How does that compare to this, to what you're doing with your foundation? How does that success in it sports d- compare?
0: It doesn't compare. Not at all. Doesn't doesn't mean anything, uh, Brian. I, th- I think the thing that um, the world is going to tell us, and it has. And, and even at times, i bought into it, unfortunately, is that we need to strive for money, fame, and power, and that it's going to be rewarding. And the more of that you get, the the more identity, the stronger identity, the, the more you're going to have. And I just don't believe it. I, I think God's economy is different. I believe the more you give, the more you actually have. And I've seen that with so many of our partners around the world. We just got back from from Africa where we were for, for a month, and you see it with so many people that that – materially don't have much but spiritually emotionally relationally they have everything because of what they're doing every day and i'll tell you what those are also heroes of mine so and you took your fame and your power and you're using it for other people well i think what I, i've really would love to do and strive to do is take the the little bit of success that that God has blessed me with and turn that success into significance because I believe success is about us but significance is about other people and I would rather have a life of significance than a life of success because I believe there's going to be a lot of people that at the end of their life they had a lot of success and then they realize it doesn't mean anything and I don't want to be someone that at the end of my life I I have a little bit of success and I realize oh, my gosh, it's really a tragedy because none of it matters.
2: You just sold like a million books because that's what your book's about, Uh, Mission Possible, uh, Go Create a Life That Counts. Tim, you're doing that and only halfway there.
0: I appreciate you, brother. Thank you, I'll see you in Ponte I look forward to it. Thank you, buddy.
2: I know you guys are listening.
1: Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade.
2: Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you uh, from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world, and hopefully in Ukraine. Dr. Oz standing by, wants to be the next senator, certainly get the nomination in Pennsylvania. And uh, Rich Lowry from the National Review. So let's get to the big three.
1: Now with the stories you need to know,
7: it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We're out bargaining with madmen, whether it's in Iran, whether it's in Venezuela, Russia is sitting down at the table with us. When you deal with madmen, when you spend that much time with madmen, not only is it a bad look, you have the potential to become one yourself.
2: That's Rick Perry, former Secretary of Energy, longtime governor of Texas. The ripple effects of a reboot on a new Iran deal already extracting a huge price for American on energy security and with our allies.
4: Number two, we're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine.
2: Energy, an overdue American ban of Russian oil and gas. Will President Biden blame Putin? He goes ahead and blames Putin for the outrageously high gas prices hurting every sector of American life. He's doing that. Will facts get in the way of that? I hope so. We have to make a non-political decision to drill here at home like we never have before.
0: Number one. To be or not to be. You know this Shakespeare question. This question could be about Ukraine, but not anymore. Because it is obvious that the answer is to be.
2: Uh, that is the interpretation of President Zelensky addressing a joint House of Parliament yesterday. He got a standing ovation as he quoted Churchill and really inspire that nation like he did ours, the fight. The heartless brutality is on display as desperate Ukrainian fights, are, uh, fights are, over, are fighting the overrated, immoral Russian army who are trying to shut down a country that simply despises them. We will bring you the latest, and we understand the latest is they're trying to circle the capital city and try to decapitate the, uh, the, the current government, and I wish they got the message 14 days in. I don't think that's going to happen, nor do I think they have the guts to do it with me uh, right now is uh, Dr. Oz. He wants to be the next uh, senator from Pennsylvania. He's got his hands full. Uh, Dr. Oz, welcome.
9: Good morning, Brian. Good to be with you.
2: Dr. Oz, did you ever think that Ukraine would be the number one story in America, not involving any impeachment talk?
9: (laughs) No, I did not. Uh, But I got to say, we started getting inkling of it pretty early on. We saw the weak responses to some of his forays, and Putin was probably unbelievably surprised when he could get away with as much as he was demanding and thought, maybe I'll keep going. But it is shocking to me that uh, he would believe Russia could take over a country of 40 million people uh, without paying a huge price. And I don't think he expected the world community to crack down as they have. And I, it, it, all that is good. The problem, of course, is that it was done so late that it didn't dissuade him from making the first move. And now he doesn't seem to be pulling back. But I'll tell you, here in Pennsylvania, where I'm running uh, for the Senate, and the real issue comes down to what we could have done to prevent all this. And what are we going to do now that it's happened? And that has to do with the stuff under my feet right here, which is natural gas and oil. And this state has – this commonwealth is rich in these resources. We could power the entire country for 100 years. We could help our allies. And folks here are livid that they're not allowed to go back to getting our solutions out of the ground that could help stabilize energy prices, provide national security to our country, and at the same time, help our allies in Europe deal with this madman.
2: So here's what Jen Psaki said when people say drill more at home, cut 18.
4: Well, let me give you an example. Um, there, there have been
0: some, including the American Petroleum Institute, who have claimed that this is an issue of having access uh, or funds. Um, the oil and gas industry has a lot of permits. Onshore alone, more than 9,000 unused approved permits to drill.
4: And I would note that only 10% of drilling is happening on federal lands. The other 90% is on private lands. But I'm talking about the 10% in that case. So the argument that there are just no opportunities to drill for oil is just not true. The
0: phenomenon that we're actually seeing is much more about firms uh, wanting to return cash to investors than about a lack of opportunity.
2: Do you think she's correctly characterizing the petroleum business?
9: No, that's duplicitous and knowingly so. And there's no way anyone who understands petroleum could believe what she's saying. And let's go through this. First of all, a lot of those 9,000 permits are unusable. You've got to build roads to the to the spot, and you don't have permits to make the roads. But let's get to the real core issue here. This is not about returning money to investors. There are patriotic Americans who are saying, I know. How to get natural gas out of the ground in the cleanest way possible, better than any other country will do it. But I'm not going to invest a billion dollars if a year from now a, a bureaucrat in the Biden administration with a swift of their pen you know, bans my ability to put a pipeline, pipeline in that could ship my natural gas to, for example, New England. And it's not like it hasn't happened over and over again. It literally just happened before – Putin invaded the Ukraine. So you end up taking companies who are trying to make wise investments and you bankrupt them. Any business leader knows you're not going to buy inventory that you can't sell. And so they're not going to put the resources to, to play if they don't trust Biden. That's why the response should be from Jen Psaki, because he's probably speaking for President Biden. We will make it a national security imperative to protect our natural energy. If people invest, they will be allowed to complete their projects and ship their product. That's what we did with the vaccine, right? With Operation Warp Speed, President Trump didn't just say, go out and build something that's incredible, like a moonshot for you know helping with, with COVID. He said, we will backstop, and we will buy what you make to make sure you're not going to be bankrupted by investing in America. We have to do the same thing to oil and energy producers. They don't want money. They just want to guarantee they can actually finish what they start.
2: Um, what I think is the most diabolical is that Jen, Jen Yellen uh she goes over, Janet Yellen goes over to the G7 and tells everyone, "Start divesting from oil stocks. start pulling out of your portfolios because we don 't want to be part of the fossil fuel business it 's not good for the planet, so even though uh, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, who has a mutual fund run by a financial planner and where it might be Shell oil or some other company, might benefit you and grow your grow your wealth, they don 't want it to, to do it because it 's not the green agenda. And that is hurting so many companies and stopping the drilling in so many different spots. And the reason why it's not in federal land it takes an average 141 days to get a permit into in federal land. On average, in Texas, it takes two on private land. Where do you think you're going to go with your business?
9: Well, without question, we're seeing that here in Pennsylvania because it takes us six months to get permits. You can do it online in West Virginia and Ohio, literally across the border from where I am. So not surprisingly, even within the country, we've got problems. But let me just reduce this in a way that I try to do for COVID. Because as a doctor, I saw firsthand the fallacy, the false narratives that were circulating around COVID that allowed a authoritarian, top-down approach to give bad advice that hurt us all. As a scientist... I see the exact same thing with energy policy. The woke green agenda will not work scientifically. I'm not talking about policy or wishful thinking or investments, it cannot be done yet. We're not scientifically able to do the things that they believe they can do in the timeline allotted. So we're going to have to use carbon-based fuels as a bridge to get there. The cleanest of these is natural gas, and when you pull it out of the ground without wasting methane, which people here in Pennsylvania do, you know, continually, then you end up with the best opportunity for us to bridge to a cleaner planet. Why? Won't the woke green agenda be moved a little bit to to accommodate science? Just like with COVID, they're so blinded by the possibility of of someone else having a good idea. They won't accept it. The same thing is happening now with green energy, uh, with uh, regular energy, because the woke green guys will censor them, shun them. And because of that, we don't have people raising their voice anymore, saying exactly what needs to be said about the the importance of energy in our national infrastructure. So
2: let's talk about COVID if we can. Uh, We have in New York City now, maybe it's a city near you in Pennsylvania when you're listening to us or around the country. They say, okay, you can take your masks off, but not the preschoolers. So two to four-year-olds can't go to school without a mask. How ridiculous is that?
9: Well, the World Health Organization for the entire pandemic, Brian, has said, do not mask toddlers. Children under the age of five should not wear masks. Here's why. It doesn't work. They can't keep it on. Uh, they can't they get slobber all over it. So it doesn't work. The masks don't fit anyway. It probably doesn't matter because young children don't seem to have much of a problem with COVID, but they definitely are paying a price. And we have more data from yesterday, again, showing children are developing uh, more and more problems. They can't speak because they don't see the teacher's mouth move. Uh, they feel scared of each other. They've got masks that blind them. From being with each other, if they have glasses, which 5% of children do, they can't read because they fog up all the time. The parents don't have to wear masks. The parents are at risk. The kids, not the parents, the grandparents are at risk. These little kids should be allowed to live their lives. The harm that we're doing, uh, Brian, could be irreparable. We don't even know. It's one massive experiment. But I'll tell you, my grandkids, and I've got a couple in that age group, they don't wear masks, and I'm not going to put masks on them. And I'm not going to vaccinate them either, by the way. They probably already had COVID and never even knew it.
2: Uh, Where do you stand on mandating the vaccine?
9: Mandating the vaccine is one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. First of all, invasive medical procedures generally are not mandated on people. We don't forcibly sterilize people. We don't do lobotomies on people. I'm not going to put needles in people. They should decide on their own if they want it. And here's the reality, Brian. Amazingly, despite what you hear from legacy media, Americans are smart. Ninety-five percent of people over the age of 65 or with risk factors got vaccinated, right? They knew there was a benefit against mortality from getting vaccinated. They went off and got their shots. By the way, I got my shot, too. I'm working in the hospital. I thought it was the right thing to do for my patients. But I don't want to vaccinate my grandkids. Because I don't think they're at meaningful risk. There is a downside of getting vaccinated, like getting myocarditis, and it violates basic medical knowledge to ignore natural immunity, which has already been demonstrated to be better than getting the vaccine. So why would it be that departments of health ignore science? Brian, my son, uh, who's at Columbia Medical School, where you are, uh, got COVID over Christmas, and because of that, he has natural immunity. He'd gotten the first shot, by the way, in order to go to medical school. His school forced him to get a booster he refused they said you don't have a choice he said i'm in immunology class i'm literally taking the class right now and in the class they're telling me not to get the vaccine because if you already had an illness you don't need to get a vaccine afterwards they said it doesn't matter you still have to have it what are we teaching young people oliver by the way finally said enough's enough i'm not doing it and they relented because bullies are cowards and the, and the school finally allowed students not to get vaccinated if they've had prior covid but it doesn't make sense that we would Take young minds and destroy them, warp them, by not allowing the truth to be acted on.
2: Interesting, because uh, my daughters were told, they're both in college, if they didn't get it, they, they were out of the school. Uh, and so did other my family members. One had to just leave the school because they would not budge. It was a SUNY school. They just, they would not budge. He had to leave the school with one year left. Because he refused to what get
9: you it. What need to do? Yeah, but here's what I did with, with Oliver. We wrote letters. to. We had doc, doc, respected doctors in, in uh, virology and infectious disease write letters saying it was wrong, not like an optional. It was wrong for him to get a vaccine if he'd already had the illness. And eventually they relented. You should do the same with your family. In fact, everyone listening now, if we don't push back, Brian, and this is what I've been saying to my audience, is we do these big town halls across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I had, they had 400 people last night. And I tell people, just my one request say what you see. Don't back down. If we do, we'll continue to lose the culture war. You know, we're bringing Republicans. We're bringing index cards to knife fights. Don't go in there with little efficiency arguments. Go in there with a big, bold statement that we as conservatives believe in the following realities. We're not going to let you put needles into our body just because you think it's a good idea. There has to be a good scientific reason that makes so much sense to me and my doctor that we want it to happen. And Republicans get vaccinated when we need to. We don't get vaccinated just because someone tells us to. And that's the difference, I think. And you know, this goes to a deeper reality that I'm identifying, and that you probably are aware of. But for all the, everyone out there, they you know, the Republicans care about fixing. We care about fixing stuff. Democrats care about caring. So the <laughs> optics of doing something that works, but not actually the reality of benefiting us, like when Yellen's not Yellen, uh, 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 <laughs> our press secretary says, uh, you know, you're, 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 you have nine thousand wells. When, when Biden said that, that's not truthful.
2: Right, and for example, if you're a true leader, it's Zelensky, uh, you know, and it's Poroshenko. They have rivals; they're in being, they're at war. Put it aside. What's best for the country? The president should be like Joe Manchin. Hey, listen, uh, a lot of the green support that I got put me in office, but right now I got I'm I'm president of the entire country. I'm going to put that behind, and for the short term, I'm going to drill and maybe pour more money into R and D when it comes to renewables. But that's not lead. The president's not showing leadership. He's still trying to get. Uh, political gain in a time in which he should just be leading. So, Dr. Oz, I'm seeing a Fox News uh, Georgia uh, GOP poll. It has you uh, here on between March, taking between March 2nd and March 6th, it has you trailing Dave McCormick by uh, 24-15. How do you how do you close that gap?
9: I don't think it's the real gap. We have our own internal data, uh, but it's definitely a closer race. In part because they poured tens of millions of dollars into the race, and so we we're going to stay on our path. Uh, We put more money, obviously, into getting our message out, which will help us. And we also have blown up these town halls that we're going to barnstorming across this wonderful Commonwealth so people can hear the voice uh, right from me of what we're going to do when we're in the U.S. Senate. I'm very confident. And we have a, a ton of energy on the ground. And the polls, if you look at them, let's be clear about this, you literally can find everyone in every spot on the ballot because there's so many with so many different results. I'm sort of amazed by that. But if I had to handicap this right now, um, everyone that, you know, McCormick and I for sure sure are within a point or two of each other.
2: March, uh, May 17th today, it's going to be a sprint. One thing I hear, Dr. Oz, is your your town halls and your meetings are like no other. You have no notes. You walk out there and you just take all questions. You you talk off the top of your head. Not many people can do that.
9: Well, you know, doing television, and as you you know, uh, for all those years, you get comfortable thinking on your feet. Uh, I'm looking forward to the debates where that will come in handy. But most importantly, you've got to be able to explain to people who are watching, voters, fans, patients, why this matters to them and why they have agency over their future. No one wants to be a victim. And we as Republicans have right. been too quiet for too long. There are major decisions that have impacted our country, like we're witnessing with this uh, catastrophe in the Ukraine, that, that we have to have ownership over. And if we don't say what we see, then we get pushed to the side.
2: I hear you. Dr. Oz, always great talking to you. Best of luck uh, in the sprint to May 17th. God bless. You got it. Uh, when we come back, your calls, one Then Rich Lowry, put in perspective, we also have the latest from the battlefield. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show.
1: You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. To ask
3: you about the
10: Does it say that in the bill? Does it say that in the bill? I'm asking you to tell me what's in the bill because you are pushing false narratives. It doesn't matter what critics say. It says classroom instruction on sexual identity and gender orientation. For who? For, for for grades pre-K through three. I know you so five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds. And um, the idea that you wouldn't be honest about that and tell people what it actually says, it's why people don't trust people like you because you peddle false narratives.
2: So don't say gay bill. That's how people label it. They don't like it. But it's a bill that sadly needs needs to be done. In Florida, it is being done, passed through the legislature, to the, Senate and the Senate and the House. And now the governor's going to sign us. What it says is, don't bring up gender, don't bring up sexuality with kindergartners, first graders, second graders, and third graders. Go protest in the streets on that. You dying to tell some first grader to uh, what gay is and what sex is? I am not into that. We never thought this would ever come up. I don't think it's necessary. Please explain to me why it is. And sadly, we need it because we see what's happening in our schools where people's gender is not a choice one 408 7669 When we come back, we're going to be joined by Rich Lowry. Uh, back to the war. Uh, Kiev, under the microscope.
1: Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show.
7: And today he committed two grievous errors, terrible mistakes. He said no to Poland and yes to the Green New Deal. When he said no, and in essence, has thrown up all these roadblocks to getting Poland to transfer their fighter jets to Ukraine, what's he thinking? Shouldn't we be helping the Ukrainians to defend themselves? He should have said to Poland, to the United States and to NATO, figure it out, find a way, get it done. And as for the Green New Deal people, all his policies have been aimed at appeasing the Green New Deal movement in America, which means, of course, less production of fossil fuels.
2: Alright, Fleischer weighing in last night on what he sees of this MiG deal. Essentially, Poland said, I get some MiGs. I can't give you it all. It is my Navy. I ordered some uh, planes from, from America. They're not going to come until 23, 24. So if America could just help me out here, uh, I could give you our MiGs. Ukraine, you're in a bad situation. So all of a sudden they get cold feet on the whole thing about selling, having Ukrainian pilots show up in Poland and fly them out. They say, would that be something that would be provocative to Russia and they might bomb Poland? So Poland takes the MiGs and puts them in NATO at Ramstein Air Base, a NATO air base. And NATO says, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? That's going to be viewed as provocative. So right now the Ukrainians literally holding on for their collective lives with 50 children that they know of dead in their capital city, they're waiting for some type of air cover in an airfield that is protected, and they can't get 1980s fighter jets. It's pathetic that they had to, it had to come to this. With me right now is Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, author of The Case for Nationalism. Rich, can you believe we're in this conundrum?
11: Yeah, so I understand wanting to draw a line somewhere between, you know, aiding the Ukrainians and having NATO perceived as directly – involved so i guess they're drawing the line at you know fly, flying these uh, fighters from nato uh, nato territory But you know, I'm obviously sympathetic to the poles, and I I support just arming to the max the Ukrainians. I don't think the air is really the question, though. You know, they need they need more missiles. We've apparently gotten them 17,000 missiles over the last month, which is great. They need more, uh, and they just need to to engage in this desperate fight to try to hold Kyiv. You know, it's it looks like it's clearly going to get besieged, and it's going to be you know turned into a block by block, just horrifying struggle. but it's, it's really important that they hold out.
2: Here is uh, President Zelensky addressing parliament yesterday in England. Cut one.
3: We will fight till the end at sea, at sea. We will in, in the, the air. Our we will continue fighting for our land, war. whatever the cost.
11: We will we fight
3: in the forests, in the fields, on the shores. shores. In the, the bottom streets, bottom. best of yeah. all, to Ukraine and uh, to the United Kingdom.
2: Motivating to, to, to see him deliver that uh, and then to get a standing ovation. I heard he was very motivational on Saturday, dealing with a bipartisan group of Congress on a Zoom call. Uh, we know that uh, what he's done already around the world uh, with the European Union, basically they want to rush together their admission into the EU. Where's this heading,
11: Rich? Well, first of all, that, that statement is so moving because it, it channels, you know, words that have great resonance from Winston Churchill, and you know, this isn't some guy, you know, standing at Oxford giving a, a nice lecture quoting Winston Churchill. Churchill as someone who's, you know, living it um, and putting everything on the line, putting his life on the line. So it's just incredibly moving. You know, just the, the question is whether um, they can hold Kiev. I mean, I think that's going to be the whole ballgame. If if they don't. Uh, if they if they uh, do, you know it's a, a stunning underdog victory. That'll be highly embarrassing to Vladimir Putin. Maybe put his regime at risk. If they don't, you know we're going to a guerrilla war that will be uh, extremely painful for everyone, um, and I think Putin at that point will think, well, I have the whip, whip hand, I've taken Kyiv, now I can make the Ukrainians and the, and the West deal and see whether he can pull a rabbit out of the hat uh, for some sort of uh, diplomatic victory, which would be uh, achieving, you know, getting Ukraine to agree to some form of neutrality, giving, uh, forcing Ukraine to, to give up the territories in the East, and giving, the, getting the West to, to loosen up on the, the sanctions or remove the ones that hurt most if he could do that you know he's he's he would be in a much better situation than he is now and how, how embarrassing be is this a kind of victory. T-
2: you 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 came up in the cold war i mean you were an expert in this area we thought we were going to be fighting the cold war forever in the 80s it all reversed uh, and now we think the russians have rebuilt their military and we were evidently impressed to a degree what they did in syria but how unimpressive has this been and how r- literally barbaric have the have been their tactics
11: yeah so it's uh they they clearly thought they could do it in 48 hours, and the Ukrainian resistance would collapse, and Zelensky would, would flee, and there'd no longer be a Ukrainian government, and that would be it, and they could put their puppet in. That didn't work, and it's been this slog. Uh, they've had some more success in the south and the east, but otherwise it's been, you're right, wholly unimpressive, but doesn't mean they're not gonna bludgeon their way uh, to working their will. And the, the Russian way of war is not subtle. You know, It, it involves a lot of artillery and a lot of rockets, and not caring particularly about civilian casualties or reducing a city to rubble, and that's that's what we're seeing. And I just fear it is going to prevail over time, just just out of sheer quantity, um, if if not tactical ge- genius or, or brilliance, just but, sheer fa- firepower and sheer quantity. If
2: they got to get out of their armored vehicles and fight block to block, I, I don't see them being successful. I I don't see it working. And meanwhile what kind of resources do they have to put into Kyiv that's going to release the pressure in other areas of the country. Kyrgyzstan is the only town they've taken, and there's already yeah. Ukrainian protests in that town. They could not yep. get an amphibious assault on Odessa, which is basically open because they can't get past the two cities prior to that, and the south is where they evidently have their experienced troops. I think uh, I think yeah. the world's getting a lesson that they are not the 10-foot uh, bear, uh, the 12-foot bear that's got— that, uh, that is going to steamroll any European opponent.
11: Yeah, and then then the other question is, even if they do take the cities, then what are they going to do with them? Yeah, right. I mean, they're going to occupy them, or are their mayors going to be respected and have authority that people are going to pay attention to? So it's it's. I I think the the uh, the exit would be you take Kiev, you you say we've achieved our military objective, and now let's cut a favorable deal. That's what Putin's got to try to do. But holding Ukraine, you know, forever, it's it's not going to happen.
2: Right. Uh, And by the way, for a KGB guy who prides himself on intelligence to not know that Ukraine was not going to greet them in any area of the country, did not know the resentment build up since 2014 is criminal. It Also shows how insulated he probably probably is. Bill Burns was on Capitol Hill yesterday to talk about the fight, Vladimir Putin's mindset and what China might be thinking. Listen to this cut eight.
4: I think the President Xi and the Chinese leadership are a little bit unsettled by what they're seeing in Ukraine. They did not anticipate uh the, the significant difficulties the Russians were gonna run into. I think they're unsettled by the reputational damage that can come by their close association with President Putin.
2: I, I assume he's speaking as somebody without opinion with some intelligence behind that. Yeah. But I think that is logical for the Chinese to say this isn't going well. There, there, Russia is a more of a pariah state than ever. Do we really want to be their only friend?
11: Yeah. So China, obviously, this is a test case for them on whether they can take Taiwan and how how it would go if they tried. And it, it can't be encouraging. Now, there are lots of differences between Ukraine and, and Taiwan. But... Taiwan, you'd think would be even a harder military nut to crack. you know Putin could surround Ukraine with two hundred thousand forces just miles away from the border and just move into this neighboring country. Uh, China would have this enormous amphibious feat they 'd have to pull off the, the greatest uh, most complicated amphibious operation ever to take Taiwan so're they 're taking notes and, and hopefully their, their notes tell them, well, this is not something we want to try at least not any. Time soon. The nightmare scenario would be a lightning strike uh, by Putin, takes Ukraine, uh, Europe's divided, he p- plays no serious price, and then you got to think okay, China could move, you know, next two, three years against Taiwan. Ho- hopefully, at the very least, it's moved that timetable back and given us more time.
2: True. Now, we saw Russian oil get banned from our shores within 45 days. It's got to stop. That's 670 barrels a day it's pretty significant they say it's only between three and seven percent of our arsenal however for we are russia's number one customer uk says they're going to begin to do the same thing and and what uh, the, even though the europeans are highly uh, uh subjected to russian gas and oil they're going to look to do the same thing if it doesn't get shut off first i could not believe and i should not have been surprised that in this time when you need leadership leadership and zelensky is a perfect example of that Instead of providing leadership and saying, in this time, I'm going to have to push back against my renewable agenda, my green agenda, and start drilling here at home, like of all people Thomas Friedman wrote about today in The New York Times, listen closely to what President Biden does. He answered one question, clearly looking at high gas prices, and goes, knows exactly who to blame. Cut nine. Russia is responsible. He went out earlier to say Russia's build-up started affecting oil gas prices, and then the invasion finished it off. Do you think clear-thinking people understand that this, they are not the problem?
11: Yeah, I mean, Russia's part of the problem, but they're not the entirety of the problem. They're and 25 the cents of it. Is- yeah no no matter what the uh, facts on the ground are though and how you assign blame as a policy matter, the president's always going to get blamed it doesn 't matter you know if there's five dollar a gallon gas, the president's going to pay a price and This is just another example Brian we've talked about this before. you know Biden could have gotten ahead of the mass things, clearly that the the masks were going to fall away in all these democratic states he he could have you know been a couple weeks ahead of that and maybe credit a different political impression with people. And he could have done the same thing here. He could have said, you know what, in this time, uh, I realize I still believe in this climate agenda, but there are more important things and urgent things right now. And instead of begging the Saudis to pump more, we're going to uh, create jobs here at home and, and pump our own gas and oil and build the infrastructure and the pipelines we need and do the federal leasing that we need. And people might have said, oh, you know, he, he's not as left-wing as I thought. You know, he's willing to adjust to circumstances and deal with something that that we really care about. But he he won't do it. He just hasn't done it on anything.
2: But not only that, he's lying, saying that I gave you all these leases, 9,000 leases, you're not drilling on it. That's not telling the truth. And saying that we have not done anything to hurt the oil and gas industry in our country when we know Janet Yellen was over in Munich telling everybody to divest your portfolios and your financial institutions from all fossil fuels and uh, yeah, or so or look for a major investigation
11: yeah i mean the the whole agenda is is based on making it impossible to uh have the certainty to invest in the things you need to to, to drill and to frack, and these aren't operations you know you start in a day and end in a day, they're major investments that you need to be able to count on. To pay off over time. And if you have an administration saying, well, over time, we're going to squeeze you out of business, you know, it's obvious what's going to happen. No one's going to make the the investments. And, you know, eventually we'll have green technology that works and green technology that's cost effective and that, that makes sense. But it's not now. So it doesn't make sense to make oil and gas more expensive and destroy these jobs uh, to, to force us into electric cars and to windmills and solar. You know, it, just, it just makes no sense at any level security-wise, economic-wise, job-wise.
2: Here's Phil Flynn. He's our, uh, our commodities expert at the, at the channel. Cut 23.
7: It's one of the most misleading statistics. It's an old Democratic talking point that we've heard for years, and it's meant to deflect blame from this administration for for oil produce. Uh, uh, fields not producing. Bottom line here is we did hear from the oil industry after Gen Saki said that they came back and said, listen, the reason why we're not drilling is some of those those wells are dry. Some of them is because you've increased royalty rates to the level where it wouldn't be profitable to drill, and we have a relative uncertainty about the regulatory environment going forward you know for example if we decide to drill on land we might not be able to move that oil if you decide to kill that pipeline over there uh, like you did the keystone pipeline threatening to do potentially on the 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 dakota access pipeline so this is creating an uncertainty and holding back but even with that the percentage of people drilling on federal land today is a percentage is as high as it's ever been
2: On federal land, and plus on federal land, it takes 141 days on average. And in Texas, they say it takes two to get a permit.
11: Yeah. I mean, the, the bizarre thing here is that we're basically, the way new technology has kind of opened up new reserves that we weren't aware of or that were, were locked up um, previously, makes us basically like the, the Saudi Arabia of oil and gas. And, and and we just won't pump and drill. It's it's crazy. And, and also, you know, carbon emissions are fungible. So if we're not drilling it you know here at home, and then begging the Saudis to drill it so it can be used that 's still carbon emissions you know it's not as though it doesn't count because because it, it comes from saudi oil so th- this is this is senseless and again i support do research and development uh, in terms of of green energy try to create you know new new means of storage and 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 better batteries and all that that's great, but in the meantime don't screw over ordinary people who are paying the highest price when uh f- fuel prices are high it, it is uh, a at-
9: they I just want no to see sense. a
2: leader. Just be a leader. Do what's right mm-hmm. for the country. Buck your own party. Do what Joe Manchin's saying to do. There's six Democratic congressmen and women in Texas who wrote a letter to start drilling more here. Please, for once, put politics behind. Uh, and for a 78-year-old who clearly can, is going to be lucky to get through one term, I thought he might, feel, might be able to rise to the challenge. So far, he'd rather play politics. And, and I naively thought... He wouldn't. So you didn't, Rich, because you're much more cynical. Well. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's the editor of National well, Review.
11: I think they're, they're just afraid also now. You know, the, the only thing that's really keeping him at 40% is he still has high-level support among Democrats. So if he alienates his base, they fear the, the floor dropping out, when actually it's right for the country, and it would, it would help him in the middle, I think.
2: Like I said, Thomas Friedman of the New York Times, Mr. Renewable, he says it's time. We're still on fossil fuels. Uh, I'm sure that wasn't easy for him to type out. Rich, thanks yeah, so like much.
11: Worldwide, like 87% of uh, en- energy sources are uh, oil, gas, and coal. It's just not going away anytime soon.
2: Right. Um, either is Kamala Harris or Joe Biden, sadly. Back in a moment. Thanks, Rich.
1: This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian
7: Kilmeade Show. Today, the average gas price in America hit an all-time record high of over $4 per gallon. Okay, that stings, but a clean conscience is worth a buck or two. I'm willing to pay $4 a gallon. Hell, I'll pay $15 a gallon because I drive a Tesla.
2: So there's a joke on you, uh, and that's Tucker Carlson's main uh, per, uh, point saying that guys like Stephen Colbert, who make probably $60 million a year, who can afford a $125,000 car, is, well, it's electric, can afford to, can say, I am going to pay $5 a gallon for gas. Most people, I think six out of 10, are living paycheck to paycheck. There's a lot of people, and I live that life, whose paycheck is spent before they get it who have to pick what bill not to pay. And now all of a sudden that's happening. First, we have the supply chain issue. We couldn't get it. Now we have the inflation issue, which shows it's so expensive. Then we have rising gas prices. Now we have record high gas prices, which are only going to rocket up. And instead of taking responsibility for it, we're saying or doing everything to to get those prices down. You're saying, well, it's your patriotic duty to pay more. So that to me, Stephen Colbert's tone deaf. But what does he care? He is an audience and the left wing audience. Who just loves anti Trump stuff uh, and anything Joe Biden likes to do. So they're not necessarily discernible. Not like the Jay Leno audience, who really got comedy on both sides.
1: From the Fox News radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmeade.
2: Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian me Show. J.D. Vance is standing by. Jeffrey Scott Shapiro at the bottom of the hour. Everyone's talking about what, uh, what is going on in Russia as it has, has to do with oil and gas. You know what else they do? They, uh, they actually supply grain to countries. I mean, I think they're the world's one or, or second most successful uh, grain supplier. So how have they done this and how have they use grain to prepare for this war? Are they ready? to absorb some of the sanctions they've already experienced. I'm still wondering why we only have a half a dozen or about two dozen, I should say, oligarch sanctioned. There's about 100. And why we're still going only seven of 300 banks sanctioned. Let's get them all. So let's get to the big three.
1: Now with the stories you need to know,
7: it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We're out bargaining with madmen, whether it's in Iran, whether it's in Venezuela, Russia. IS SITTING DOWN AT THE TABLE WITH US WHEN YOU DEAL WITH MADMEN, WHEN YOU SPEND THAT MUCH TIME WITH MADMEN, NOT ONLY IS IT A BAD LOOK, YOU HAVE THE POTENTIAL TO BECOME ONE YOURSELF.
2: WOW, THAT IS SO TRUE. THE RIPPLE EFFECTS OF A REBOOT OF A NEW IRAN NUKE DEAL ALREADY EXTRACTING A HUGE PRICE FOR AMERICA ON ENERGY SECURITY AND WITH OUR ALLIES. I'LL EXPLAIN.
4: NUMBER TWO. WE'RE BANNING ALL IMPORTS OF RUSSIAN OIL AND GAS AND ENERGY. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine.
2: Energy, an overdue American ban of Russia oil and gas. They told us we weren't going to do that. Will President Biden, by blaming Putin for the outrageously high gas prices, hurting every sector of American life work, will he actually drill more or just continue to blame Putin? Will facts get in the way? We have to make a non-political decision to drill here at home like we never have before. Number one,
0: to be or not to be, you know, this Shakespeare question, this question could be about Ukraine, but not anymore, because it is obvious that the answer is to be
2: the fight. Heartless brutality is on display as desperate Ukrainians fight an overrated, immoral, uh, demoralized Russian army who are trying to shut down a country that simply despises them. I'll bring you the latest on that. So I want to start where I have not really gone over this yet. So the president of the United States, instead of drilling here at home, famously over the weekend, sent out feelers or sent an emissary to talk to Maduro, a government we don't even recognize, in Venezuela. And mysteriously, we get two hostages back that were taken to try to overthrow the government a while ago. I don't know who they are, but two are free. And then we send uh, feelers out to Iran, as well as Saudi Arabia, saying, guys, would you pump more? So I'm not sure if it's related, but Saudi's got the 20th hijacker back. How we left him at Gitmo, I don't know. But this guy has been through hell, I guess, is now on the way back to Saudi Arabia. When the administration reached out to the UAE and reached out to Saudi Arabia, you know what they found out? We don't know because he didn't pick up. Why are they mad at America? Well, let's see, Joe Biden. you took Yemen's side and the Houthi rebel side over Saudi Arabia. Okay? You villainized them. There's going to be a, you might think they're a terrible regime and they got a lot of negative qualities, but without them, we don't win the cold war. They also team with FDR at a very critical time to finance the allied war. So just understand as imperfect as they are and as intolerable, we would be of that government. There were times in which many of which they have been allied to us, even though the hijackers are from there, because that wasn't a Saudi policy. Having said that, if you don't want Saudi oil, then don't beg them to produce it. If you don't want the UAE oil, don't go in and cut a new deal with Iran. And that ticked them off because the previous administration collectively realized that everybody had a bad opinion about Iran. They were wreaking havoc in the region, taking the money they were now able to use from the new Iran nuclear deal and finance terror throughout the area. Send rockets into Saudi Arabia. Remember that? Remember harassing our ships? That stopped under Trump. Because we went to the maximum pressure campaign. You can't do all that. Go back to Iran. Ask Russia to cut a deal with Iran. You're allowed only in the adjoining room. And then ask Saudi Arabia to step up and bail you out. They don't even take your calls. Think about that for a second. Here's J.D. Vance joining us now. He wants to be the Republican representative to replace Senator Portman's seat over in Ohio. uh, Author of Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, We just had a poll come out on on the Senate race, primary race, Uh, J.D. Vance with 11 percent of the vote, trailing Gibbons by 22 and Mandel uh, by 20. So, J.D., welcome back.
6: Thanks, Brian. Good to have Uh, uh, good to be with you.
2: First off, did you ever think that Ukraine would be the number one issue, at least for the last two weeks, as you campaign for the seat with a primary coming up May 3rd?
6: No, that's the thing, though. Uh, The world is a complicated and dangerous place. And, you know, New things come up and new crises evolve, and that's what, one of the things we have to do is, as citizens and as leaders is be responsive to them.
2: With your military background and knowing and understanding the region, what do, you think the, what do you think about this whole MiG problem where we, the MiGs end up uh, at Ramstein Air Base and we're saying we're not going to fly them over because we don't want to tick off the Russians?
6: Well, I think it's really embarrassing because it suggests that we're frankly doing diplomacy via Twitter. Uh, This is a conversation we should have had with the Poles before we got into this situation to begin with. And it's clearly – I mean, look, my my very strong view, Brian, is that we don't want to escalate this situation. We don't draw the United States into what effectively could be a third world war. Uh, But we shouldn't be having these conversations in public. We should have our ambassadors and our leaders calling the Polish people – figuring things out and not having these disagreements in public. I mean, there, there's, you know, one of the things that Biden claimed when he was running for president is that this was the return of the adults in the room. I can't think of another, uh, any administration Republican or Democrat that had, that had such a public and embarrassing disagreement with one of our most important allies right now, uh, as, as you've seen with the Polish in this Mig problem.
2: I, I understand that, you know, you don't want to uh, activate rule five, But why are we so worried about a belligerent, irresponsible, barbaric country who is chopping up Ukraine and being outfought every time they match up? I mean, the the Russian the Russian display of military prowess has been absent. Their cruelness has been present uh, and their lack of conviction with this operation. Clearly, when you have to lie to your army, You probably have some serious issues. Why are we so afraid of this?
6: Well, I think the simple reason is nuclear weapons, Brian. I mean, that's that's really that's the red line that we cannot cross. Here uh, is yeah, the guy's a nut job. Uh, Clearly, shouldn't have invaded Ukraine, but we are where we are now, and we have to make sure that we don't get in a situation where these guys are threatening nuclear weapons. And you know, frankly, I got to say, our our own leaders. This is where the Biden administration, I think, has allowed itself. Uh, to be very careless, um, and and has talked about using you know certain people close to the administration talking about using strategic nuclear weapons. When you have a madman with his finger on the nuclear trigger, uh, that's that's the thing we have to worry about. I don't worry about Russia's conventional military, right? I mean, uh, that, that's not something that keeps me up at night. What does keep me up at night is you you know if 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 Vladimir Putin is as bad as we fear he is. Um, we do not want to get involved in a conflict with them, uh, given given the fact that he has, you know, nuclear missiles that can vaporize American cities.
2: Uh, as do we, uh, as uh, the French president said uh, when it was asked, he said, uh, we have them, too. Uh, thank you. So the biggest story that affects everybody who would vote for you is gas prices. Here's what President sure. Biden said about where this is going. Um,
4: here is cut 11. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. This is a move that has strong bipartisan support, the Congress, and I believe in the country. Americas have rallied rallied to support their Ukrainian people and made it clear we will not be part of subsidizing Putin's war. This made we made this decision in close consultation with our allies and our partners around the world, particularly in Europe, because a united response to Putin's aggression has been my overriding focus to keep all NATO and all of the EU and our allies totally united.
2: He went on to say the since their build-up, the price of gas has gone up seventy-five cents, and it's because of Vladimir Putin. Number one, do you agree with the decision and do you agree with the where the blame belongs?
6: Well, I think Biden wants to blame all of this on Putin and wants to blame all of this on Ukraine. But if you actually look at the evidence, glass prices have been going up for a year and a half of Biden's administration. Uh, They've gone up more since the crisis started, but that really most of the damage was done uh, when this guy became president and basically tore up our energy independence. And I I basically – I mean I I think that, look, sanctioning Russian oil – makes sense, but only if, only if we're actually producing our own energy and not going and getting it from Venezuela or Iran or whichever evil regime we're trying to get it from. Uh, The the big thing that we have, the big leverage that we have is American economic power. And uh, it's not just not importing Russian oil, but it's also becoming an exporter of energy, ensuring that the Europeans and other nations don't have to rely on Russian energy either. Uh, And unfortunately, what we're doing is basically taking this incredible Prosperity engine here in the United States, this incredible, you know, we've learned it's a foreign policy weapon, our energy independence, and we're not using it. And so, look, I, I really worry, Brian, when, when I look at this crisis, I really worry that American policy under the Biden administration, the net effect of it is going to be to make our energy more expensive. It's going to be to make our people more miserable. It's going to be to make our entire national security less safe. And at the end of the day, uh, not actually push back in any strong or effective way against what's happening in Europe, uh, That that's where this could be going, because we can't, you know, you cannot fight an economic war with both hands tied behind your back, and that's what Biden is effectively proposing that we do.
2: So, uh, J.D., I know how hard you've been uh, working at this. How do you feel about the polls? Do you feel it's reflecting uh, where you're at right now with 11 percent? you basically, you know, from nowhere to right in the middle of the pack. How do you expect to climb over Mandel and Gibbons if you haven't yet?
6: Yeah, I mean, you know, even even if you take that poll at face value, you're talking about pretty, you know, pretty tightly packed race. I've known from the beginning that this is going to be a long slog. Uh, You know, I think something like 25 or 30 percent of voters haven't even made up their mind. I think at the end of the day, uh, you just got to fight the fight that you believe in. You've got to put forward policies and a message that you agree with. And uh, I think the polls will take care of themselves. I feel very good about where we are, Brian. You have to remember, I've never done this before. We've had $5 million of negative advertising coming in the state uh, to attack my candidacy. So the fact that we're in it at all is a good sign. And I think voters really agree with what we're saying. And that's ultimately the most important thing. Not the polls, uh, but the vote that matters, which is in May 3rd.
2: All right. Uh, go get him, J.D. Vance. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Take All right, care. You got it. one I see the lines uh, buzzing. We'll come to your calls uh, in just a moment. you listen to Brian Kilmeade Show.
1: It's Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. And if you think we should then be buying the oil from Iran and
2: Venezuela,
12: Get you have concerns about that? Well, I mean, I think... The,
9: this is the deal with fossil fuels in general: is that it's not an accident that oil-rich states tend to be petro-authoritarian states, and so none of these options are good ones because of our dependency on oil. And so, while I understand there are short-term, you know, supply issues that need to be addressed, it's very alarming that many of the people pushing to increase and skyrocket. Uh,
12: Either imports or production, domestic production in the short term, are not talking about what we really need to be doing in terms of uh, rapid investments in solar and and wind.
2: Right. Uh, These petro uh, countries with oil and gas tend to be authoritarian, like Canada. Oh, Justin Trudeau with the truckers. He seemed kind of hostile. Like Mexico, I'm pretty sure you vacationed there, I'm sure at some point. I don't say they're authoritarian. They got some cartel issues like the United States of America drilling here at home. Do we tend to be authoritarian? I'm not really sure about that. Uh, So that's an interesting take from AOC weighing in on fossil fuels. Remember, she was the author of the New Green Deal, the Green New Deal, whatever they call it. Meanwhile, when it comes to the oil bans and what we're dealing with now that affects everybody's pocketbook right now, John Tammany went in on Tucker last night. He believes this whole thing, we should never have done this. I believe we should have done it right away, but I think that we should have been released in tandem with drilling at
9: home. Cut 28. War is always and everywhere, the health of the state. And so we have this humanitarian disaster occurring over there for the Russian people and the Ukrainian people, and the elites won't suffer it in Russia. In the United States, we have a Biden administration staffed by individuals who will never suffer the pain at the pump, who will never suffer higher uh, grocery prices, who are actively getting in the way of the ability of the American people to trade with others overseas, to import certain goods and services. And so basically, we have a scenario whereby government expands its power always and everywhere at the expense of the American people. And certainly during wars, wars are the oxygen for the state and its growth.
2: Right. Uh- It's true, but there's no other way to do it. Unless we want to hire an assassin to somehow penetrate the Kremlin and kill Vladimir Putin, the only thing we could do is starve them economically so the people rise up. There's already 17,000 people in jail that understand that this guy just perpetrated a brutal illegal war on their neighbors, many of which— they're living next to. So for those people who think we shouldn't ban Russian oil, should have no problem taking six hundred paying for six hundred fifty thousand barrels of oil a day. I bring you Poland. They have taken in one point three million refugees, followed by other European nations: two hundred thirty five thousand, then Hungary two hundred thousand, Slovakia one hundred fifty three uh, thousand. Russia says they've gotten ninety nine thousand to come back to then. Good luck with that. Uh, and Moldova eighty two thousand. So what is happening? Why would we go to these ugly nations rather than drill more or ask Canada to pick up the pace? Victor Davis Hanson, Hoover Institute, Cut30.
4: Yeah, well, translate that. That means, that means North Dakota, Alaska, Texas, you're not going to produce any of the dirty fuel. But we're going to go beg the narco state of Venezuela, and we're going to beg the theocracy and the terrorist state of Iran, and we're going beg, to beg Vladimir Putin and the royal... Saudi House. We're going to have them pump the dirty oil that we won't pump, and then we're, it's, it's going to make us safer. Well, all we're doing is empowering people who don't particularly like America, and uh, we're telling people who do like America, you can't help us. And it's insane. It's nihilistic. It's, I, don't, I don't know what the logic is other than it's destructive. It's destroying the middle class here, and it's making us vulnerable, and our enemies are delighted about it. And he thinks this is good?
2: Yeah, to go over to Venezuela. It sounds great, wouldn't it? They everyone tell me in the oil business they give the dirtiest oil period in the world. We used to get a lot of it when they were at least a fledgling somewhat of a democracy. We had pri- we had our private oil companies there. They nationalized everything. One communist, Hugo Chavez, died, and his bus driver is now running the country who we don't recognize. But over the weekend, Joe Biden went over and said hello. Fantastic. So Keep in mind, too, there's evidently a ceasefire in battle. I hope it holds. It's only supposed to be temporary, sadly. But this is what they're saying. Evidently, um, I'm pretty sure this has been formalized. Russia says, if you want me to stop bombing, just uh, promise never to join NATO, pledge neutrality, and give us Crimea permanently and recognize the independent Russian separatist region called the Donbass region. In turn, you have to promise to stay neutral. I don't know how that goes with the European Union application that Zelensky just filled out. So they are talking, but with the Russia is done right now, they're totally gummed up. They might be able to take a town, but they're not going to be able to hold it. They they might have an army that's 100% in, active. They said they have 800,000. Well, you have 150,000 in action in country in Ukraine right now. I don't know how secure you feel elsewhere. You're begging the Syrians to fight with you. You told Belarus to fight with you. You told Kazakhstan to fight with you, but you're not going to do it. China's not going to fight with you. They'll buy your oil, but they're not. they got to be embarrassed by the military showing of the Russians and the thuggery in which we're witnessed. Good luck with your big friend, your best friend, China. When we come back, Jeffrey Scott Shapiro joins us, and he has a theory of how Russia prepared for this war by weaponizing food. Don't move.
1: The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
5: The energy crisis and the problems that are happening now at the ports means that there's going to be a major food crisis in the world. Because a lot of grain and wheat comes out of Ukraine, about 30% for the world. So just automatically, that's off the table. And and today you heard that China is buying up all the grain that it possibly can. So now the prices are going to go up. Our World Food Program already had to have the amount of rations that they're giving to people who are in refugee camps, like in Yemen, for example. So when you have a food crisis, that leads to more uprisings. So the problem that is happening in Ukraine right now, that war is going to have ripple effects all around the world, in which America is going to be asked to take a leading role. We just have to figure out what we're going to do about it.
2: So that is Dana Perino saying, you focus on oil and gas, but look out for the grain, the grain that Russia has. Have they weaponized it? Jeffrey Scott Shapiro thinks so. Uh, Jeff joins us now. Uh, He uh, he is currently uh, with the investigative journalist, uh, D.C. prosecutor, and and former director of the U.S. Office of Cuba Broadcasting. Uh, Got out of there just in time. Jeff, when did you realize that that Russia could be weaponizing uh, grain and food?
8: You know, Brian, um, even though I've spent most of my career as a journalist and a lawyer, my father has worked in cogeneration energy development his whole life. He also worked at NASA during the Apollo moon mission. So I sort of sometimes pick up these things about energy and science and aerospace. And uh, he's been working on some projects, uh, you know, kind of related in this area. So I started doing some research And uh, even though Russia sort of started advising some of its companies recently in the last few days to stop exporting fertilizer, I did some research and noticed that there was an earlier Kremlin order on February 1st. And this order was to actually ban the export of a chemical compound called ammonia nitrate. And the reason this is important is because even though it doesn't sound like anything we recognize or fertilizer, ammonia nitrate is a key chemical component of a type of nitrogen fertilizer that is sort of a uh, high-tech spiked version of fertilizer that stimulates growth.
2: So, how much do they have as uh, compared to the rest of the world?
8: Well, we all know that you know this comes from you need ammonia, right? And to get ammonia, you have to have natural gas. Now, Russia is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, producer of natural gas in the world. And what they do is, you know, you take natural gas that goes into a refinery through what's called an air separation plant. They separate the components of the air, which is divided between oxygen and nitrogen. The nitrogen is then mixed with natural gas, carbon is separated, and what you come out with is NH3, nitrogen hydrogen, which is ammonia, okay? And Russia is a huge exporter of ammonia, and they have been exporting ammonia to different countries around the world, namely Brazil, which is a huge part of the food supply especially in the western hemisphere. This is the reason that President Bolsonaro from Brazil ran over to talk with Vladimir Putin even after the Ukraine invasion began because he knew that there was no way that they could continue to sustain their growth and food supply without getting ammonia and fertilizer from Russia. So unfortunately this is a very key situation right now. A lot of us have been focused on oil and gas but the impact and the choices we're going to have to make about how we use ammonia could go into how we deal with our own food supply here in the United States very soon. So,
2: so when do you think we'll feel it? Because now is the planting season, right, March? And that's also when uh, Ukraine is hoping to get their grain going. I'm not sure they can.
8: Right. I mean, the good news is that we're not going to have to make some of the hard choices right now, being in the spring and the summer season, about whether or not we use some of the natural gas to produce ammonia right um, you know to be used for fertilizer in the food supply or whether we use it to generate power energy and electricity in the winter months when we need heat but as you said this is the growing season now we're just getting into this russia obviously foresaw this and i find it very suspicious that three weeks before they actually started moving armored vehicles and tanks into ukraine someone had the foresight to say put a complete ban on ammonia nitrate as early as February 1st. I don't know exactly at what point we're going to start to see the impact of this, but I think it's something that's going to happen sooner than later.
2: So what about uh, Russian grain? Um, We keep saying, well, so many people are reliant on gas and oil. What about grain?
8: Grain. Russia, obviously – You know, that whole region of the world plays uh, a significant role in that. Uh, Brazil obviously plays a significant role in that. Like I said, you know, a lot of the supply over here in the Western Hemisphere comes from what's happening down in Brazil, but Brazil can't function independently. Brazil has to be in a position where it can get fertilizer and the ammonia-produced fertilizer to produce grain, to produce corn, to produce soybeans, everything that's coming out of this region here in this hemisphere, unfortunately, a lot of it, is reliant on what they're importing from Russia.
2: Yeah, uh, and so far we haven't seen that. I'm pretty sure we could uh, sacrifice. I'm not sure of too many other countries uh, that can. Um, meanwhile, uh, when, you talk about, when we talk about possibly taking out the Russian leader, we, Lindsey Graham got a lot of pushback when he came out and said, it's time for Brutus to rise up in its missed and save the world more hell and destruction. You think that's possible?
8: So I wrote a piece a few days ago saying that it was time for the Russian people to overthrow Putin. I have a piece coming out tomorrow night saying that I think actually Senator Graham was right. Some people criticized him for calling for an assassination. I don't think it was an assassination because assassination actually calls for a murder. Murder is an unlawful killing with malice, right? And he used the comparison of Stauffenberg. I don't think anyone's going to make the argument that when Stauffenberg tried to kill Hitler, it was an unlawful killing with malice, right? It's what we call defense of others, and it's legal under the justification of justifiable homicide, right? I think that there's a number of people inside of Putin's United Russia party that are probably very discontent with him. And there's probably a lot of people in those circles, as there always are within Russian circles, that are vying for power and vying to remove him, just the way Brezhnev removed Nikita Khrushchev in 1964. But sometimes people need to hear a moral outcry to know that something otherwise would be considered illegal or immoral is going to be acceptable or is even wanted by the world. And I think when Senator Graham said what he said, he did so because he was sending a signal to the Russian people and people who were close to Vladimir Putin to let them know, if you do this, if you have the courage to do this, you will not be viewed as a war criminal. You will be viewed as someone heroic who stopped a war criminal who is committing genocide.
2: Right. I I still remember Yeltsin standing on a tank as they tried to overthrow uh, Gorbachev. Uh, And keep the government somewhat intact. Even Russians have a a tendency to hit their threshold uh, in times of uh, strife. And I think we might have hit it now. But the one thing I I have noticed, when people rise up in the streets, uh, they get arrested. They get 10 years in jail. There's 17,000. That's what they admit to. There's probably more that have risen up in the streets against this war. And they kicked out all the press. It's not going to be an easy job.
8: I don't think it's sustainable. This is sort of what's happening in Cuba as well, right? They put so many people in prison from the July uprising. It's now becoming a situation they really can't control. I think you're right. That is going to be what probably happens in Russia pretty soon. One of the reasons that democracies always seem to prevail over authoritarian societies, Brian, is because authoritarian societies use so much of their resources to try to police their own citizens, to try to control so many things that aren't controllable and to try to engage in these sort of illegal incursions that they do, that they end up using all their resources. They don't have enough to actually win when it comes right down to it. We saw that with the occupation of Afghanistan already. We also saw it, unfortunately, with what we tried to do even in Vietnam by holding the line, right? And we even saw how challenging it was to remain in Iraq, even though we were on the right side of things for as many years as we did. Um, occupations and liberations, whatever you want to call them, depending on what side of the coin you're on, Uh, in this case, obviously an occupation and a very evil one, is extremely taxing on any kind of government. And I think what we've seen so far is uh, the collapse of the Russian internal military structure. I think it's exposed them, quite frankly, for not being as adequate as we all thought they were.
2: When you get a big Syria and uh, Belarus to bail you out, you got problems. Uh, and that's what we're witnessing now, 150,000 troops all in-country, and they have only taken one city, even though they're trying to take the capital, and just putting a whole lot of hurt on a bunch of innocent people and sometimes death. Jeffrey Shapiro, thanks so much. Thank you. You got it. Uh 866 408 7669 Chris, listen, WDBO. Hey, Chris.
8: Hey, Brian. How are you?
2: Good. What's on your mind?
8: Hey, listen. Yeah, listen— I- I sit here and I think about, you know, why the administration may not be overly concerned about inflation and gas prices or, as you recent guests talked about, coming food uh, expansion even past what it is. You know, you're squeezing people just outside the poverty line, right? And why would you be doing that? You know, why would you let millions of people in our country that come here, it's for dependency, See, socialism needs one particular thing. It needs government dependency. So they don't care if they squeeze people just outside of it. They don't care if people come here who don't belong here, because if they can make the government people dependent on the government, they eventually get what their real mission is, socialism. That's, what,
2: that's yeah. why I
3: think they don't care.
2: Yeah. You know what, I, I, Chris, I wouldn't say you're being cynical. I think you're being practical. But I also think there's huge pushback. You're going to see it in 2022. Nobody's happy about the border. No independence. Everybody, except maybe AOC and the way to the extreme left, are happy about the border. Nobody's happy about what's happening to Ukraine. They see the fact is that this country reached out. All we did to do is arm them, not fight for them. They see the f- they see what's going on with the lack of drilling. They don't buy the permit scheme that they keep throwing at us. There's a lot of things that aren't really tough to figure out, and I think the American people are about to give a huge slacking. To the people that are pushing that th- those socialist programs, because America does not want it. Uh, thanks so much. When we come back, I'll take your calls and find out if there's indeed more to know.
1: Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. He's so busy he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade.
5: What they're doing with this bill is even even amid the torrential downpour of nonsense that we get from these people, it manages to stand out because what we know about them is: look, the left—they're—they're very—they they're, have no integrity. They're, they're liars. They're also good at branding. So they—they've they've taken this bill and branded it the "Don't Say Gay" bill. When not only does the bill not do that, it—the bill doesn't even mention the word "gay" anywhere in it. It all it says, as uh, the governor points out is very specifically that you cannot, there cannot be classroom instruction by a teacher about gender identity or sexual orientation for kids up to the up to grade three.
2: Yeah, that was Matt Walsh and the Matt Walsh Show reflecting on uh, Governor DeSantis about to support a bill that says don't talk about sex to my kid if they're in kindergarten, first, second, or third grade. Of course, there's outrage by it. What if your kid's gay and ostracized? So the first, the kindergarten, first and second and third graders need to hear that they got to pick their gender as if they got to pick their favorite color or sport to play. Listen to DeSantis get confronted at a presser.
3: I want to ask you about the recommendation
10: the Don't Say Gay Bill is on the Senate floor. Does it today. say that in the bill? You know that you support- Does it say that in the bill? I'm asking, you the- I'm asking you to tell me what's in the bill because you are, you are pushing is- false narratives. It doesn't matter what critics say. Hold on. It says it bans classroom instruction on sexual identity and gender orientation. I for support- who? For-, for, <laughs> for grades pre-K through three. I know you support- so five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds. And um, the idea that you wouldn't be honest about that. And tell people what it actually says. It's why people don't trust people like you, because you peddle false narratives.
2: He's a tough man. Governor DeSantis knows what he's talking about. He, he doesn't just throw issues out there to get ratings. He does it to affect people's lives. Uh, that's a little of the, what you might not might have missed, because we're all over this war. So let's find out if there's even more now.
1: More to know.
2: Okay, I'll get started right now. Aaron Rodgers denies he signed a contract worth $200 million, but it does say he is going back with the Packers and play into his 40s, which means his longtime backup quarterback is going to have to hit the road. uh, So we'll see how that goes. Aaron Rodgers, probably the most high-profile player in the league. He is a lightning rod, whether he's talking about the vaccine or he's talking about moving or getting traded. He stays. Now give him some weapons. Next. Russell Wilson traded to Denver. This is a real surprise to me. This guy is a quality guy. He goes to the Broncos for a lot. Their starting quarterback, Drew Locke, goes to Seattle. Uh, Defensive lineman, Shelby Harris, two first-round draft picks, two second-round draft picks, and a 2022 fifth-round pick, all for Wilson. So, the Seahawks get to rebuild, which they have to do, and Wilson gets a team that perhaps is ready to win big.
12: And Brian... So we had Tebow on the show earlier. So what did he say about this? He was super excited, right?
2: Right. Do you have a sound bite? Want we don't have the, I
12: want you to paraphrase it. Because, he you know. says it's
2: going to be great. It's going to be a great mix. And he's got a very excited, good feeling about Denver. Most fun year he had in professional football. Because when he came in and got a chance to start, even though his stats weren't great, he kept winning. And John Elway, who was the legendary quarterback and GM at the time, the president of the team, could not believe it. And then he goes to the playoffs. And he starts a game. And he pulls off a huge upset as Denver beats Pittsburgh, they would lose the next round. And then a month later, they would sign Peyton Manning. And then guess what? Tim Tebow didn't have a team.
12: He did not, but he, yeah. but He says Russell there.
2: Wilson's going to love Denver. Yep. said nothing but good feelings. Next, Apple unveils a new iPhone to be available starting March 18th. New iPhone's going to be the uh, SE 2022. It comes with a iPhone 8-style body. Uh, and it packs a new processor, 5G support. And uh, has a $420 price tag. I think it should be more expensive than that, shouldn't it?
12: I think so, but a lot of this stuff is very technical. And I don't know, does it mean anything to you? Well, <laughs>
2: March 11th, that's coming up quick. It's got a 815 uh, chip that makes it faster processing. It says the new SE has a CPU that's 1.8% faster. Um, I think it's more of the same thing. Just there's, When's, when's Apple going to do something new? The last thing they did new was the iPad, I think. Or the, the, uh, the AirPods.
12: The AirPods, too. I There's to some, watch. Yeah,
2: yeah I kind of like the watch. But that's not revolutionary.
12: No, at the same time, it's like the incremental changes are nice, right? Because when you get a totally new iPhone, right, then you have no idea how to work it. You just get frustrated because you don't know why, like, messages are coming in or where's your email or the different apps. So incremental is nice.
2: If you're looking for another job as we switch to the next one, have you thought about babysitting?
12: I've thought about it. Right. <laughs> if I can and only get paid to watch my yeah, kids.
2: Yeah, if you got paid to watch three kids under four, do you even know
12: their names? It depends on the
2: day. Right, because you gotta work. You'll work first, aren't you?
12: Brian, you are the center point of my
2: life. <laughs> no, it's the show. It's not me. Um, most expensive cities for babysitting. New York City averaged twenty three dollars an hour. San Francisco twenty three as well. Uh, the lowest Miami. You gotta you gotta live on twenty dollars an hour.
12: But that's for one kid. If you have multiple, it's higher.
2: Right. And what if they're not well behaved? Is there like the kid gave me problems say, I need twenty five an
12: hour? It could be. I mean, you know, if you want to keep a babysitter, have them come back next time, that might be what you have to do. The lowest
2: rates are 14 an hour. So if you have a kid and want to save some money, move to San Antonio, especially if you want to work two jobs. Uh, so I just think goes to show you that daycare is more and more costly, but everything is going up. We all know that. Plus, the, all our money is losing value at the current of 8%. So even if you're babysitting, get paid cash. Do not
12: tell the government
2: and do not call me and tell me you're babysitting. And not telling the government.
12: Agreed. Yeah. You don't want to admit that.
2: So don't forget to, make, I just got word, Fox Nation's going to be on Saturday at 8 and 11. One Nation. Right.
12: Not Fox Nation is always on.
2: Right. Uh, it's called One Nation. But on Fox Nation, I'm going to be doing a brand new special, Who is President Zelensky? So that should be good. So that should be good to build on the Who is Vladimir Putin which evidently is being clicked on like crazy and got a great rating on Sunday.
12: Fantastic. I mean, is it because people are curious about Putin or they want to see more of you?
2: I think it's me. I think a lot of people write in and go, I like the wraparound. Less Putin, more Brian.
12: Exactly. But they write
2: in Russian, so no one even pays attention.
12: That's what you translate it. Right.
2: More Brian, less Putin. Putin, uh, again, I'm from the Lindsey Graham School. If you're Brutus and are by Vladimir Putin, do what I know you can do.